You're listening to the People You Should Know podcast with your host, Bill Kuhn. Thanks, Dave. That's right. This is indeed People You Should Know podcast. It's season one, episode two. Last week's debut, that was a lot of fun. We had Megan King on here, and I cannot thank any of you enough, especially those who listened last week, for the warm reception. I I really was not sure what was going to happen, what was going to come of it, but... Hundreds of people listened to the podcast last week, and there were some really nice comments happening. The Ellers Danlos Society shared it as well on their page, which was super, super cool. Always great to know that other people are grabbing it and pushing it out there and using it as an awareness tool. Hopefully that happens with today's episode. But before we get into that, I just want to say I hope everybody had an awesome 4th of July weekend. I, I personally had a really good one myself. Saturday was a bit exhausting. Sunday was too. Just some commuting and moving some things around. But finally, I ended up on a boat for the last couple of days in Wisconsin with some family, some friends. And I'm pretty tan right now. I don't want to brag about that, but I'm pretty tan. And in even better news, I still have all 10 fingers. So that's a plus. I survived. I didn't Jason Pierre Paul myself, so anybody who sees me in the next 12 months at a show, I should hypothetically still have all 10 fingers. Speaking of shows, a little bit of an announcement. I'm in the process of finalizing several shows in the fall. I do a lot of shows, but there's a few, just a few of them that I can probably get a couple listeners of the podcast in the audience to come check out the speech. I know a lot of people read Swim and I get a lot of emails all the time, people asking me if I can come out. A lot of people in Virginia want to see me speak. So spoiler alert, it's not in Virginia. Sorry, I'm not going to be coming to Virginia anytime soon, unless maybe you guys in Virginia have something for me to come out to. I don't know. But right now, Virginia is not on my map. But there are a handful of other cities that, like I said, maybe I'll be able to get you into it. I'm going to work on it a little bit more Hopefully next podcast, I can drop the names of some cities. So stay tuned for that. But today, time to focus on today, today's podcast. Today's podcast features a really remarkable person, somebody who went through something that was absolutely terrifying, something that doesn't really happen to people her age normally. But she is here to talk about it. She is stroke survivor, Erin Generis. Typically, strokes, they impact people who are a little bit older, around 65-plus range. In Erin's case, she's 27 years old, and about a year ago, just over a year ago, and we'll get into that during the interview of the podcast, her life changed forever when she had a stroke suddenly. And since then, she's been climbing back, fighting back, and she's facing a new chapter in her life, a chapter that is very close to home and reminiscent for myself. It's time in her life when she decides that now that she's better, now that she's healthy, she wants to become an advocate. And she's one of the newest advocates out there really that I I know about for any condition. And she does a fantastic job advocating about strokes. She's a pharmacist. She's 
super bright, super intelligent. You're going to love hearing what she has to say. And because she's super new, you won't be able to follow her journey like you were last week with Megan King. But this podcast did just get a new Twitter handle at PYSK Podcast. Follow that. In doing so, when she does launch her website in the future, when she does start doing her advocacy pieces, we'll tweet them out. In fact, it will be a great way to keep up with all the guests of the podcast after the episodes conclude. But let's get into it. Without further ado, here was the interview I had with Aaron Janaris. Joining me on the podcast today is stroke survivor and stroke advocate, Aaron Janaris. Aaron, thanks so much for joining today. Oh, you're welcome. So let's just get right into it. The day of the stroke. Understanding the signs of a stroke is very important. And you were able to do that. We'll get into that in a little bit. But walk me through it. Take me back to the morning of the day your life changed, June 27th, 2016. Um, so I had been having pretty severe headaches and neck pain for about 12 weeks before, but those were my only symptoms prior to June 27th. So that morning I had woken up with um, pretty extreme vertigo, which was just like dizziness and a loss of feelings, sometimes associated with nausea. And it went on for like an hour or two. And I just remember it being very distinct. But then it had kind of gone away and I was able to like shower and just kind of go about my day. So I didn't think enough about it, I guess. And then later in the afternoon, I was going to run an errand at like an outdoor shopping center. And I went to approach the mall. And as I was driving there, my right foot started falling asleep. And I just thought like the timing was odd because, you know, I never experienced my actual driving foot falling asleep while driving. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of stood out to me. I'm a pharmacist. And so at the time I thought, you know, vertigo, foot numbness, and these headaches, I, I, my gut told me, am I having a stroke? But I was 27 years old at the time. And so I really thought like, you know, I'm 27. There's just no way. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I just continued on, and then I went into the store and went to check out, and the woman who helped me said, like, are you done? I can help you over here. And all of the words sounded very jumbled, and difficulty comprehending speech is often another symptom of a stroke, and being aware of that, that was another, like, red flag, but to me at the time, it sounded like the woman had misspoken and that I had heard them correctly. Wow. And I had never heard any stroke a victim um, describe that symptom just like that. And so it was enough in the moment to convince me again that I was fine. And so I continued back to my car. And as I went down the step from the sidewalk to the parking lot, I lost my balance and almost fell. So I didn't want to turn around and go back up the step. And so, again, I knew something was really wrong at that point. So I intended to go back to my car and call 911 myself. But I got in my car and I turned the air on and it was, you know, like 95 degrees out. Mm -hmm. And just kind of put my seatbelt on out of habit. And as I like picked up my phone, my whole right side became very numb and tingly. My vision became very blurry. I could tell I started to have a, a very drastic facial droop, 
and so like because my vision was so blurry when I went to dial 911 I would dial incorrect numbers and so I would dial like 912 and then have to backspace I kept dialing the incorrect numbers and so it took me about 30 minutes and what's going through your head while you're struggling to punch 911 into a phone sure as a pharmacist, I had responded to stroke codes when stroke victims came into the hospital where I work. I would respond about like three or four times a week. And I had never seen a patient that severe because in the moment, within like just about a minute, I went from being able to speak normally to not being able to speak at all. Mm-hmm. And I had never seen a victim without their speech completely. Usually it's like slurred or they're drooling a little bit. And so I was just sitting there in my car thinking, like, this has progressed very rapidly. And like I said, I've never seen anyone this bad. And my fist became, like, very clenched up in front of my chest, which is kind of abnormal. And so I was, like, looking around, seeing people in the parking lot far enough away. And I wasn't able to move to, like, honk my horn and get their attention. So I was just sitting there thinking, am I even going to be able to get through to an emergency operator? I'm going to die here in my car. That's terrifying. Um, And yeah, just like the fear and the panic that sits in and you like almost just want to start crying. But at the same time, the adrenaline that's there, like you just can't do that in the moment. Like you're doing everything you can to get help. Mm -hmm. And so like I finally got through to 911 and they kept asking me what, what was my emergency. And again, I couldn't talk. So I would just, attempt to and I was able to get a moan out at times but other times I wasn't able to produce any sounds and so their minds go right to like are you like a teenager you know have you been drinking have you been using drugs and it's just so unfortunate that like as a stroke victim that they automatically assume that like they don't even consider that you might actually be having a stroke and so just like the whole conversation went on for quite a few minutes. And again, they had no idea what kind of car I was driving. And so finally they traced my cell phone and found out where I was located. And they sent mall security to come find me. And, ha- and- had, had they not been able to do that, what, what do you think would have occurred? I mean, honestly, nothing. I think I would have potentially just died in my car. Like I said, there were people around that could see but the shopping mall I was at the parking lot like very spread out and there's oh quite a big gap in like each aisle and so like the cars across from me were like far enough away and then there were just so many like spaces empty between each car so I just don't think anyone would have like noticed me there that's scary so then who finally noticed you having a stroke in your car Mall security found me pretty quickly, but, you know, like I said, it was 95 degrees out. And so at first they thought I had heat stroke. And so he kind of asked me, can you open your car door? And like I said, I wasn't really able to move. So I just like kind of looked at him and I remember being able to nod my head no. Um, So he asked if he could have permission to open it. So he opened my car door, just felt my skin and realized it was pretty cool and, you know, thought like she probably doesn't have heat stroke and realized, you know, since it couldn't open my car door, he just said, 
she really needs help. So let's fast forward a bit. They're in your car. They're going through your stuff, probably trying to find some type of cell phone, purse, some kind of identification to figure out who to call, who to contact, who you are. And they take you to the hospital. What happens next? They got a hold of my mom and they told her, you know, what was wrong to meet us at the hospital. And then we went to the emergency room. And luckily, we they brought me to where I actually work, which turned out to be kind of a blessing in disguise. So we got there and I just remember like, hundreds of people swarming in and out, not closing the door all the way, like changing into a gown I'm just trying to take my blood pressure and heart rate and everything. And I just remember hearing them talking about me and just saying, we have no idea what's wrong with her. And then like identifying my symptoms and that I had right-sided weakness. And the whole time I was sitting there, a hundred percent sure that I was having a stroke. And so I just kept staring through the head thinking like, I'm having a stroke. How can you be missing this? So this entire time, you're fully awake, fully alert, lying in a hospital bed. You can see around you, but you cannot speak or communicate to tell them, hey, I just had a stroke. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it was just totally, like you said, just terrifying. And then I remember the doctor coming in and him being unsure as well. And like I said, my age really threw them off. And so finally my mom got there and she had had a mini stroke about 15 years prior and so she was quickly able to realize that I was kind of there and that she would be able to communicate with me by asking me yes or no questions and having me nod my head so she started asking like you know are your eyes painful are they blurry do you have numbness here here and here well pointing to different locations on my arm and like the medical team had given her enough background as to like they could tell probably something was wrong with my vision and that like I said my right side was completely weak Mm -hmm. so she just kind of like used her own experience with that to realize it's probably numb too and just knowing the typical stroke symptoms um she just kind of put like two and two together but I mean she has like no medical background or training or anything you know specifically so she just was an advocate for me and started persuading the the medical team to really investigate a stroke. And she's like, you know, I think she's really having one. Mm -hmm. And finally they, you know, called a stroke code and just went on from there. And I went for a CT scan and it showed sure enough that I was having like a massive stroke in my brainstem, which is a very rare spot. You can have one. And then I also had something called a dissection, and it's just like a tear, a little tear in the artery. And in, usually, if people have any, they would have one, even though that's pretty highly unusual. Mm-hmm. But I had four in all four of the major arteries that supply blood to the brain. Oh my god! And so that's, I mean, like kind of like one in a million. It's really unseen. Right. So just the combination of those in combination with the location of my my stroke really kind of threw them off and they said I had over like a 90% mortality rate and just started trying to do everything I could. Mm -hmm. 
what was our course of action? Because obviously the clock is ticking this whole time, and you know it took you a while to even get them to find you in a car. What do they do? So in strokes, if you have uh, – there's two kinds of strokes, ischemic and hemorrhagic. And if you have an ischemic stroke, you can receive a drug called TPA, which busts the clot. And usually, like, when you get that drug, it's very time-sensitive, and usually we can only administer it within three hours of when your symptoms start. And so identifying the time that you believe your symptoms start is so important. And knowing this as a pharmacist, I remember being in my car, and the first thing I did was look at the clock. But again, not being able to communicate this, you know, I could not tell anyone. Wow. I was aware of this time. And so since time had gone on, they were trying to use my receipt from the store and my phone to see what time I called 911 to just try to identify if I was still a candidate for the drug. And the drug is, it's very good and it's very important if you can receive it. So like I said, knowing this time is just so critical. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some cases, people can receive it within four and a half hours. It just kind of depends on different criteria. So they ultimately determined I was just within the four and a half window period. And I did receive the drug. But because of my stroke being in this very large blood vessel, the drug doesn't really penetrate large blood vessels as well as small ones. Mm-hmm. So in the moment, it didn't do much to kind of like correct my symptoms. Mm-hmm. In the long term, it's definitely helped. And so I received it. And like I said, didn't really get like an immediate improvement. And then a few, I don't know how many minutes later, I started getting worse. And they all of a sudden were like, we have to intubate her. And so I remember sitting there and hearing that we need to intubate her and, you know, use this like tube size. And like, I just remember hearing those specific details up to like kind of the last minute. And once they do that, they kind of like sedate you and you're, you know, it's all, you're kind of out from there on. And, 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 that's, so they- and that's such an interesting element to your particular experience, just being you, know, you compared to an, another person who might not be a pharmacist or, or a medical professional who experiences a stroke is, not only are you incredibly alert, but you're speaking the lingo of the doctors around you. Yeah. So it just, yeah. it almost, it almost uh, takes that fear and that craziness that you're experiencing in that moment and exasperates it. Yeah. Because I mean, like you said, you're just sitting there and you totally understand what's going on. Like every aspect of it. And in that case, you do know too much and it almost makes it worse Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so then I didn't really like even though I knew they were going to intubate me I didn't know what the plan was really after that so they ended up bringing me down to have a procedure done where they went up through an artery in my leg and put two stents in my arteries to try to keep the blood vessels open so that blood could continue flowing through them and then the doctor who did the procedure also removed the clot that I had, um, which I believe was fairly large. But the procedure itself was very complicated and took a lot longer than it normally does. And then a few hours later, I woke up and I remember being able to look around and 
initially my speech was definitely affected and I could talk, but it was definitely like slurred a lot and also just my swallowing for the first um, several months was affected. So Yeah, so let's talk about recovery because it sounds like you were bouncing back a little bit in the hospital after they gave you that drug. But how long did it take for you to get to the point where you are able to speak as articulately as you are now? Well, I was in the first hospital, first two hospitals for about three and a half weeks. And during that time, I even had to receive a nasogastric tube that goes from your nose to your stomach because of how much the swallowing was affected. And I like just couldn't swallow pills and anything like that too, and just food. So in the beginning, like it was, like I said, definitely affected. And I would just have to go through swallow evaluations and stuff like that. And then after that, I was transferred to a real a rehabilitation hospital. Mm-hmm. And I was, I stayed inpatient there for almost another month. And I went through speech therapy there during that whole month. And then when I went home, it had improved quite significantly. So they had determined, you know, like, even though I was going to be in outpatient therapy at that point, to that I no longer really needed the speech therapy. And that just over time, it would just continue to progress through normal conversations. Mm-hmm. And so it definitely has gotten a lot better over, I mean, really over almost 10 months now. Um, and then just like swallowing wise, it's still affected in the sense of like when I'm having conversations, I notice that I'll have to pause a lot more and kind of focus on swallowing your saliva and then being able to restart talking. And then if I'm eating, you know, foods like rice or anything small, I just have to focus a lot more on being careful and making sure to swallow. Mm -hmm. But in terms of that, and like just in general, after my stroke, luckily my speech wasn't affected as much as some people, but I've heard this from a lot of other stroke survivors too, just for probably like four or five months when you're having conversations, coming up with the right word that you're trying to locate is very challenging. I would just be trying to, you know, come up with a basic word and I would not be able to identify what it was, even though I knew in my head, I I knew what it was. I just couldn't come up with the name. To be 27 and struggle to find words. How frustrating is that? So incredibly frustrating. It's still just so frustrating to be able to have had a normal conversation, you know, like a month or two ago, and then all of a sudden not be able to come up with any word to like finish your sentence. Did you notice any similarities in the words? Were there ever phrases or groupings of particular words that were harder to remember than others? Um, Sometimes. I remember specifically the two major ones that I had trouble with were left and right. I would always I don't know, whatever it might be, I would say, like, be trying to say my left foot, and I would always say right instead of left. Hmm. And same thing with, like, the opposite side. That was, like, one particular example that I remember very clearly and um, dominantly. Like, it was always there. Interesting. Well, then, switch gears for a second. What would your advice be to somebody, say they had a loved one who had a stroke, and this particular loved one is now struggling to communicate. 
what's the best way to communicate with them that is not only compassionate, but communicates with them in a way that allows the particular person to not get frustrated? Oh man, that's a good question. (laughs) I would say just trying to be patient and not rush them. Don't try to finish their sentence. Mm Kind of like give them time to try to come up with what they're saying and then judge their reaction and if they kind of like might need the help or want the help. And I think just being open about it and actually talking to the person about it and asking them what they prefer because they just know like after meeting a lot of other stroke victims and just seeing how different every situation is really everyone also responds so differently so I think just talking to them and showing them respect that way I honestly think that's like one of the biggest pieces of advice I give to people who are dealing with other people who've gone through a stroke I'm looking at the calendar right now, and I'm noticing we're approaching a particular date. Yeah. We're recording this on June 21st, 2017, and your one-year anniversary of this life-changing day for you is in exactly six days. I know from my own experiences that there's certain days of the year, and especially when you're in your first couple years out, for me... I'm heading on to year eight post-transplant, leaving the hospital, all that great life, everything. But definitely in my first couple years, year one, two, even three, there were certain days that really hit home with me and I was in a different mood on those days. Days like June 8th, the day I looked down and found my ankles were swollen. That was a big day for me. The day that I was put on the transplant wait list and, or escalated, I should say, on the wait list to a much higher level, much more severe level. That day always rings a bell for me. That's September 19th. October 21st, the day I got the heart transplant. And of course, the following day when I got the kidney. All of these days are days that I'll never forget. They're all days that when they pop up on the calendar, I remember them. I have flashbacks. But at the same time, I'm able, especially like I was saying, now that I get further out, to be able to look back on what I have accomplished in the longer time span. For you, are you experiencing any similar memories or emotions? And if not, I, I hope I didn't just trigger them. But, um. <laughs> no, I mean, like you said, it's hard not to. I mean, like you said, it was such a life-changing day that it's always going to be especially the day of the stroke itself, that will always be something that I remember. And so it's kind of weird, like you said, now being less than a week away from the one-year mark, it's every day that's getting closer. I definitely, it comes up more, but I don't think that I'm going to really understand how I feel till the day of. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, like in some ways it's a positive, like positive emotions where I just can't believe it's been a year and the risk of having another stroke within the first month or two and let alone the first year is definitely increased. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of a big sign as to like, wow, I survived all this and a more testament to like what I've gone through. And, you know, like at first I wasn't even able to walk and now I'm walking and driving and living on my own again. And so 
it's more just, you know, like, just like I said, a testament to, like, what you've accomplished. But then at the same time, there's those negative things where I wouldn't even say it's, like, it's necessarily, like, anxiety or anything. But, like, it brings back those traumatic feelings of, like, what you went through and being stuck in a car and those, you know, feelings of the fear and the panic. And just, like, I remember being in the ER and looking around and my friend who was um, the pharmacist who responded to the code, um, like I said, she was one of my good friends. And when she came, like, I just saw her and just was, like, crying because I was so glad to see her and just have, like, some comfortable aspect. But, like, all of those emotions do come back. But, I, like I said, I think it's twofold. Like, it's a positive thing and a negative oh, thing. Oh, most certainly. And in my experience, the first few years, the first couple especially, are probably the most intense in terms of emotions. But as you get further, yeah. as you get further out, it becomes more of that positive, especially when you hit that five-year mark. So, Aaron, my last question for you is this. Let's say somewhere right now, Somebody is listening to this podcast, regardless if they're in Australia, United States, United Kingdom, Denmark, wherever, right? And they're listening to it, and they just had a stroke. They just had one. They, they found about this podcast through some type of person who heard about it, gave it to them. It's usually how this works, because they knew they had just been impacted by a stroke. And they're sitting there, they're listening to this, either in the hospital or their first couple days home, recovering, Now that you are at the end of your first year of recovering, looking back on it, what advice do you have for someone who is just beginning their first year of recovery from a stroke? Sure. Well, I think for me, when I was going through it, two of the biggest things that helped were, one, having a positive attitude because it, it's this terrible life event that happened. And like you said, it's life changing and you can't even predict or imagine how the next few weeks or months or years are going to go. And so it's something that like at this point it happened, like you have no control over that. And so, yeah, you can like be super negative and, you know, have terrible feelings all the time. But, like, that's not going to do much good. I mean, believe me, there were days I just cried and cried and cried in the hospital. But then you kind of let those emotions out and you go back to, like, being more positive and upbeat. And, like I said, if you focus on the negative, it's just going to make everything so much harder. Mm -hmm. So I think that was one piece of advice that, like I said, that helped me a lot and I think would help a lot of other people. And then two, developing like a really good support system and whether it's like your family or friends or coworkers or whatever it may be. And even like your, your medical team, whether it's like the nurses or the doctors, there's so many people who can and are there for you and just being willing to accept that and just, like I said, accept help, whatever it might be. Those are so important. And then just in terms of like the stroke itself, educate yourself on kind of what might be to come. Because I know for me, like initially, it was very hard the first week, especially 
because there were so many unknowns as to when I would go back to work, if I would go back to work, and especially as a pharmacist, you know, would I be able to drive again? Would I be able to live on my own again? Would I even be able to walk mm-hmm. ever? And so, like, there were just so many questions for that. And so trying to, like, and, and mainly it was just hard to accept that now all of these things were going to change in my life. And so I think being open and kind of willing to accept that, you know, unfortunately things are going to change and you obviously can relearn how to do all of that. And that's very possible, but just being aware that, that like, and not naive to the fact that those things are going to present themselves. Mm -hmm. And in addition to like those more major things, there's so much that you experience after a stroke, and I don't think enough people are really aware of it. And I know I was not at the time. And I think part of it is that I I kind of question as to whether stroke victims and survivors even present this information to their doctors enough, because I wasn't even like educated about any of this, and I got the impression that most healthcare professionals aren't aware because as I would talk to my own colleagues and stuff like this, they were not aware of some of the things that you experience. Uh, One being like for a good four or five months, like I said, the, you know, difficulty coming up with words and that's a lot more common and talked about, but for, yeah, like four or five months, I had severe bladder and bowel incontinence Mm -hmm. and I had no control over it. And it's, embarrassing and humiliating to be at home or out and about and just have no control over you know your bowel and bladder and just I even remember like like I said it's super humiliating but at home you have to kind of redo your whole body and to almost be like you're potty training again and it's just something like people are like I think I think so embarrassed about that it's not really talked about and so I think just being aware of that, well, one, it's okay to talk about, but like two, that those things might happen and just accepting that because I know for a long time, it was just so much of a humiliating factor in that you don't want to talk about, but it's not going to change and it, it will get better over time. But like the more you just sit there and deny it, the harder it's going to be. Well, Aaron, I know I'm new at the whole podcasting thing, but I know when to stop an interview and that was the perfect end point right there you're new to the game so new to advocacy you don't have a website yet so instead of telling us a website like everyone else will put it out there what are the signs of a stroke what should people look out for reiterate it go um definitely the primary thing that they always try to educate people on is an acronym called fast and it stands for f for facial drope a for arm weakness S for large speech, and then T for time, because like I said, time is so sensitive when having a stroke. So definitely whenever you think that you're having a stroke symptoms, or I mean, just in general, if you think something is kind of off, definitely call 911. Don't have someone drive you to the ER, you know, anything like that. Just call 911. If you think that you're having stroke symptoms specifically, or you think that something is just generally off. Millions of brain cells die every minute that you're having a stroke. And kind of like living proof of that, I had so much 
happened to me in terms of function, um, loss of function, strokes, you know, can and do happen to people at any age from infancy to elderly people. And so, you know, don't sit there and think that you're the exception, you know, not telling someone that I might need help sooner is still like one of my biggest regrets. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the show. That's it. Season one, episode two is officially complete. I want to thank Erin Generis for coming on the podcast. She did a fantastic job. I truly enjoyed my time talking to her. And I, I personally, I learned a lot about strokes. And I, and I hope you at home learned a lot about strokes and enjoyed listening to Erin's story and everything she's been through. Next week, I will be joined by Jay Austin. We are going to be talking minimalism. You can catch a sneak peek of that podcast next Monday by following the show or following myself, Twitter at the Bill Coon or at PYSK Podcast, and on Facebook, facebook.com slash TheBillCoon. Do you know somebody who you think should be on this podcast? If so, head to BillCoonSpeaks.com slash podcast. There you can suggest someone. There's a form, super easy to use. Lastly, if you are using Google Play or iTunes to listen to this podcast, please go in there, give the podcast a review, give it a five-star rating. In doing so, it will only help others find this podcast. And even if you're not using that, just tell people. Share this podcast. It's a new podcast. More the merrier. Let's get everyone involved. But until next week, have a fantastic Wednesday, a great Thursday, an even better Friday, and a kick-ass weekend. I'm out. <laughs>